Open with two. We'll be continuing our series today in chapter two of First John. We're coming now to the section which is a doctrinal test, test of what we believe, specifically what we believe about Jesus. But we won't quite make it that far today. I had planned to do ten verses. I've done four, and that will be enough for one day. Uh, I remember reading in a preaching manual that most people, they gloss over too much and we should go in more depth into Scripture. And I think that was right. And so try to bring out more of the details. Not quite as much as the Puritans who would preach for three hours on each word of the sentence. (laughs) But I pray that the Lord will bless as we come to this section which has some, uh, um, some more challenges in it. Why don't we start at the beginning of the chapter? Uh, Well, not at the very beginning, at verse 7. Um, 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Moreover, (coughs) excuse me, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge, and I write you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, that if you heard that what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly today. We do want to pray for one more request that you be with Susie, who's getting her COVID test today and having ear surgery this week. Pray that all would go smoothly and that she would be able to get the surgery taken care of. And Lord, we ask for grace to her. And now also as we dive into your word, pray, Lord, that as we look at these things and consider these things, you would open our hearts and open our eyes, open our minds, that we might see and hear and understand and put into practice the things of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we are starting a doctrinal test in the next Two weeks, Lord willing. It starts with telling us and reminding us about the Antichrist. This is the time of the Antichrist. It is the last hour. Now, this phrase is only used here in John's epistles and nowhere else. But it is, there are other phrases that are used the same way and carry pretty much the same meaning. And I want us to think about those a little bit. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, says, speaking of Jesus, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And so we are in the last time also. Uh, in First Timothy 4, the first three verses, Paul talks about this. He says, The Spirit expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed, seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Not a lot of similarities there to 1 John 2. These... Basically, we're dealing with antichrists or false teachers in the latter times. But the latter times are where we are living, and we need these warnings to help us. Second Timothy 3, the first, three, or first seven chap- verses of the chapter. Understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, 
swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into houses and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. So he's calling out the false teachers in the last days. Jude, which we recently studied, talks about this as well in verses 17 through 19. Jude, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the spirit. And so John is telling us very firmly in his passage, in John 2 that we read, verse 18, that we are in the last hour, the last time, the last days, the latter times, whatever you want to call it, that we are in there. He's he's putting us in our place in God's redemptive plan so that we can understand what trials we're going to face and what troubles we're facing. With the advent of Christ, him being born in the flesh, with his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, we have transitioned to a new hour, a new time, a new period in history. The time of the Jewish temple worship in waiting on the long prophesied Christ to come, the Messiah to come, we are now transitioned from that into the worship of the risen and glorified Christ, revealed to us more fully than they had in the Old Testament. And it's called the last hour, the last time, because there's really nothing else in God's plan of redemption before the return of Christ. We are in the time where we have the full gospel, we have the Messiah fully revealed to us, and now it is a time of the gospel going out to all corners of the earth, to all of God's elect being awakened and brought into the church, into the faith, into Christ. So this is then the age of the Gentiles, the church age, and it is the last one. The Jews were waiting for the time of the Messiah. We have him. Now, sometimes Christians get confused about this. It's the last hour, but it's been 2,000 years. I know I was very struggling with that as I trying to understand, because people were telling me that, see, the Bible is wrong. It prophesied that God would return soon. The apostles expected it in their lifetime. Uh, They'd quote passages like Luke 9, where Jesus says in verse 26 and following, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we know that some misunderstood and thought John would be alive until Christ returned. And they say, see, the Bible is wrong. But if you read on a little further in Luke, 
Continue with the next verse. Now about eight days after these sayings took place, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And we have Christ revealed in all of his glory, transfigured on the mountain. And I think that's what some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They've seen the kingdom in Christ. They've seen the king in his glory. And that is the kingdom. Uh, Not necessarily a promise that it would be in that time, in that lifetime. But the promise, the return, but the promise that they would see what that would look like. Those three men were greatly privileged to see something nobody else had ever seen. Uh, Peter, I think, deals with this problem very clearly. And once I read that passage in Second Peter and understood it, I was no longer deceived by these people who were telling me, see, the Bible is wrong. As he says in first, or Second Peter 3, verses 3 and through 10, and it's a long passage, but it's important for I want to read it. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, come on, it's been 2,000 years and they said it would happen in their lifetime. Where is this coming? God has already foretold that's exactly what they would be saying. But he says... They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that existed was deluged with water and perished, talking about Noah's flood, creation and then the flood. But at the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept with the day of the Lord, uh, until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. And so the point here is we're in the last day. God hasn't told us how long that is. We're in the last hour. God hasn't told us how long that is. It's just the last thing that happens until the end. And God is being patient. God who arranged everything before he created the world and determined all that would happen and works out everything according to the purpose of his will has this purpose that all those who he's given to his son will come to him and then the end will come. And so he's being patiently waiting, but there's nothing else waiting for other than the completion of his plan and the end. And so we, we should really uh, understand that we are in the last time and that we are waiting then for the return of the Lord 
waiting patiently because we don't know how long God has planned since for him time is really meaningless because he's already planned it all out and he knows what's going to happen and when it happens. But that is one of those teachings that we keep talking about, those false teachings that comes up trying to trick people away from their faith and deceive them. And we'll talk about that in more in a minute. And he says, you have heard, this is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, Antichrist there doesn't have the word the in front of it. It's just Antichrist, singular. Some people think that it's not so much a title, but a proper name. It's the name given to somebody who's coming, the ultimate of the Antichrist, which are referenced in this passage, the, the form of all of those. Because John says many Antichrists have already come. And what does it mean but anti against Christ? Now, there's only here in John's epistles do we find this word, the Greek word antichristos. But we find another word in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew and Mark, not in Luke because he doesn't have that account. But I want to read that for you. Talking about the end of time, end times or about the sacking of the Roman sacking of Jerusalem after Christ had ascended. Jesus says in Mark 13:19 and following, For in those days there will be such tribulation as had not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. And the Lord, had, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, he chose to shorten the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Be on guard. I have told you this beforehand. Now, the word translated false Christ is pseudo-Christos, or pseudo-Christoi. Pseudo meaning false Christ, as opposed to anti-Christ. Now, some people feel they're the same, but I think it's better to take them as slightly different. A false Christ is somebody who's claiming to be Christ. An antichrist is somebody who's opposing Christ. Now, a false Christ, a pseudo-Christos, I can give you an example. We all remember the wacko in Waco. Uh, he was a pedophile and an adulterer, David Koresh. He led a cult called the Branch Davidians. I remember hearing an interview with him during the crisis, and he basically claimed to be Jesus. And I know some conservatives feel, oh, this is you know, the example of the evil American government trouncing on the, right, the, the religious rights of the minority, that, like, like us, Christians. But I don't think we should take it that way. This man was very evil. And he claimed to be Christ. He was a false Christ. The Antichrists are those, as we'll see, who are opposing Christ, as opposed to are claiming to be Christ. Although those claiming to be Christ are Antichrists in that sense, in that they're opposing Christ by pretending to trick people into thinking that they are him. 
Now, he says in that first verse 18, you have heard. Where do we find this and where do we hear this? Well, some people think Daniel's prophecy of the abomination that causes desolation is what's at mind here. We know Antiochus Epiphanes erected an altar to Zeus in the temple on top of the altar for burnt offerings. And he sacrificed a pig on it. And that was in 167 B.C. And he did many horrible things, and they think they see those in the prophecy of Daniel. And it may be true. Daniel's prophecy, you remember Daniel 11 and 12. Uh, a couple of verses maybe to remind you. 11, 13, 31 from Daniel. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And chapter 12, verse 11, from that time the burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolation is set up. Those shall be 1,290 days. Now, it's a prophecy, in part at least, about what's going to happen in their time. But when Christ talks about it in Mark 13, 14, he says, but when you see, and this is the same passage we read a moment ago, but a few verses earlier, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it not, not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so there's a past compl- partial completion of it and a prophesied future completion. Some people see that that's what's in mind here. And it may be, There is a concept in Scripture in the New Testament of an Antichrist as a singular person who will be the one opposing Christ, especially in Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians 2. There's a a lengthy section that talks about that. It calls him the, uh, the man of lawlessness. And... Most commentators and scholars think that they're talking about the same person, the same being. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, it's a long passage. Maybe I'll just read the first five. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being together with to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or by a letter seeming to come from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Now apparently there was a teaching going around there then, as there is today, that the coming of the Lord has already happened. Uh, The first time I heard of preterism, it was in this respect, the extreme preterist who says, everything is already past tense and we're in the eternal state. God has come. Something along those lines seemed to have been taught in that day. But he says, the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And this is the key here. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so this man of lawlessness is coming And he will proclaim himself to be the true God. Do you not remember 
that when I was with you, I told you these things. So apparently this is part of their oral teaching in all of the churches was the warning the day would come when this great man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who may well be the Antichrist, will be revealed and he will lead his great rebellion against Christ. And that's what it says. It will not come unless the rebellion occurs first. And so there's probably a link here between the two. But that was the teaching being given to the churches. And so the the Antichrist and these Antichrists are those who are opposing Christ and trying to usurp his place as God. And he says, many Antichrists have already come. This is how he says we know it's the last hour. We haven't seen the great Antichrist yet, but we've seen many Antichrists. And even in John's day. And that makes it clear that we're in that last hour. Now, some believe everything was written before the fall of Rome. But others believe John was the last survivor we have from church history that he lived in to be in his 90s. And at the end of his life, he wrote Revelation. But also the epistles were probably written at that very late time. And if that's the case, he has seen a number of great persecutions. He has seen the church you know, really struggle, and he has seen a lot of false teachers come up. And he's referring to all of these different sects that are trying to use Christianity as a jumping off point to get followers for their own religion or their own you know, wicked beliefs. So he says, many have come out. That's how we know it's the last hour. And I, I really, I don't think this is a surge of people claiming to be Christ. Right? They're not pseudo Christ. They're not saying I am Jesus. Uh, but that they are false teachers. They're setting them up themselves up and opposing to Christ and going against him, and thus they're being referred to as Antichrist. And they're trying to usurp his authority. Now, I don't think an Antichrist is necessarily any false religion, but it's religion that's claiming to be Christian and yet is opposing the Christ of the Bible. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you've ever read the original version, not the American version, the original version, in chapter 25, talking about the church, I want to read something for you because they mention the Antichrist. Section 6 says there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but he is that Antichrist, that man of sin, that son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. So they felt that the office, I guess, of Pope was what the Antichrist referred to. In other words, that it was more not a person, but an office. And there was good reason for that. I think we've mentioned this before, but just if you read their, the Catholic Catechism, which you're required to believe to be saved, 
You know, just what it says about Mary is enough to assure you that they're not Christians. They call her in their catechism, the queen over all things, our advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. In other words, she mediates with God for us. Now, we're told in the Bible, there's no mediator between God and men except Jesus Christ. And they're saying, no, Mary is the mediator. They claim she had no original sin in their catechism. And she never committed sin. John has already spoken to that. If you say either of those things, you don't know God. Now, of course, she would never say that. Uh, They basically make her equal to Christ and necessary for our salvation. Uh, One of the popes in one of his declarations declared that she is the one who crushed the poisonous head of the cruel serpent and brought salvation to the world. You know, in the light of that kind of teaching, they were saying, no, the Pope is the Antichrist. Uh, the Americans revised that a little bit. They left out the word Antichrist, which I think they should probably have thrown in. But the American version said the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church and the claim of any man to be vicar of Christ and head of the church is unscriptural and without warrant in fact and is a usurpation dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're saying essentially that all the popes are ungodly, they're antichrists, but not necessarily the antichrist. And it's important to think about our history in that way, because this battle was very terrible. Um, People were executed for refusing to submit to the Pope of Rome and his religion. And many were dying even in the days the confession was written for the Christian faith. And so this Antichrist is Antichrist against Christ. And we see this in another way when we look at the hatred and the rage within the so-called Christian church against the Bible and its truth. They are supplanting the word of truth with their own ideas, but what they're really doing is supplanting the living word of God, Christ. Uh, Jesus speaks of this, but I want to read a few other passages. In John 1.14, the word became flesh, right? We need to remember when we're talking about the word of God, we're talking about Jesus. You know, this is not the word of man. This is what Christ has given to us and is represented as Christ, the very word, the living word. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. John 14, 6. And sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 7. So when we read in our passage today, that truth and the word, we need to understand that when we rebel against those, we're really rebelling against Christ, who is the living word. And so those who name Christ and yet even teach against his word, they're really rebelling against him and they're anti-him, they're anti-Christ. And I think that's what's at mind here in the word anti-Christ. Now, who are all these antichrists that John mentions? 
He starts off by saying they went out from us. We'll look at John, 1 John 4 later, but I want to read 1 John 4 because it talks again about the Antichrist and about those going out. He says, Beloved, do not believe every sphere, but test the spheres to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you may know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The same test that's given in our passage we read this morning. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. So the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, even if he hasn't come in person yet. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is of the world. John has come back to the same topic he's talking about in our passage in the end of John 4, or 1 John 4. They have gone out from us. Why do they go out? They're not part of the true fellowship anymore. You know, why do they go out from the fellowship of the believers, the fellowship of the apostles? The fellowship with God, right? Remember back in 1 John chapter 1, our fellowship is with the Father, and he wants you to fellowship with him and therefore with the Father. Why do they break that fellowship? Well, because they don't really know Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he's condemning them for the factions in the church, but he says there, there have to be some because those who have been redeemed and those who have not cannot agree, cannot mix, will be like oil and water. And so the first reason, why do they go out? Because they have no faith in Christ. The second reason, why do they go out? Why do they break their fellowship with the apostles and with God? And it's, as I was just saying, because of our faith. In First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and following, it's that passage, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not go God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So man in his wisdom cannot understand God, cannot know God, does not see God, does not pursue God. And the truth becomes a stumbling block to them. Why do they not want to stay in the church? Because the Bible is teaching nonsense. The Bible is teaching foolishness. They don't accept it. They reject it. Now this going out, we saw this in the Bible in Acts chapter 15. Certain men from James had come. And now James is speaking. And he says, we should write the following letter. Brothers, both apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. 
We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. And so it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then he gives the letter explaining the truth. (coughs) But he's saying that these men, they may have gone out from us, but they weren't of us. We didn't give them the instructions. We didn't give them a charge. They were just doing what they wanted to do. And they were wrong. And they caused trouble and division in the church. And so we we see that often today, though. You know, not just the major sects and the cults that have completely departed from the church and have nothing to do with the church and say the Christians who don't follow our, you know, our book or our rules or our ideas can't be saved. The Bible alone is not enough. We're not talking just about those people, although we are if they say they're Christian. But I think what we really need to worry about is those who are slinking around in the churches secretly, like we learned about in Jude, trying to fly below the radar, not cause too much trouble, but leading the people away from God in the church until they finally leave and set up their own church. And that's why I think... John here tells us that they were not from us. They were not of us. They are not us. We are, as we saw in John chapter 1, right? The believers are those who are fellowshipping together and fellowshipping with God. And these people who have left are not part of us. That's why they've left. And that was the first three verses of 1 John that talk about that, that We're proclaiming this doctrine to you. And it's through believing that together that we have fellowship together. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. and We testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life. Which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. In other words, all those things they saw, all those things they heard, all those things they've learned of God, of Christ, are what they're proclaiming, and that is so there can be fellowship together. And these people rejecting that have no fellowship then with them, and so obviously they have no place they leave. One side or the other leaves. Now, we finished the book of Jude, and that has a lot to say about this. So just think back to that. I don't want to spend any time on that because I'm already running too long. Uh, John's tests here in this book of 1 John are really tests to help us. They're not just about our assurance of salvation. How do I know I believe? Am I really a good believer? Am I really progressing? Well, John tells us these are the things. But these tests also help us test the leaders, the teachers. Are they teaching these things? Are they living these things? Are they really fit to be teachers? And that's important for us because these people are going out and teaching. If we acknowledge that their teaching and their their beliefs do not belong in the Christian church, If they acknowledge that and they leave, it's really not a bad thing. 
Right? We would like them to believe and to acknowledge the truth. But for the peace and purity of the church, it's not always a bad thing for these unbelieving people to leave. If they're creating divisions in the church based on their false doctrine, if they're leading people astray, then the peace and the purity of the church will be improved by them being gone. It's not really the first resort, but it has to happen. (coughs) A lot of times, though, they refuse to leave and they want to transform the church. We need to get rid of all these biblical ideas that are against our society and against our lives and against what we want. And they take over the church and change it. We've seen that happen many times in the past within the Presbyterian circles, the PCUSA, and now I think really the PCA is going down that road too. How far they'll be able to go is hard to say, but there's so many people jumping ship. It's now only a matter of time, I fear. But they want the church transformed to their ideas or the popular author's ideas And they'll seek to drive out the believers. And Jesus talked about this in John 16. The first four verses, he said, I said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember what I told you. Did I not say these things to you from the beginning? Oh, I did not say these things to the be- from the beginning, for I was with you. Now, this is the hour of the Antichrist. Many we're seeing today the church condemning the teachings of the Bible, condemning as hateful Christians who advocate the truths of the Bible. And those are Antichrists. They're opposing the Christ of the Bible, in his revelation to us. Now, when they fail to go out, you know, I'm not saying we immediately need to drive them out with you know, torches and burn them at the stake. Uh, what has become a life verse for me, because of my own tendencies, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and following, is important for us to remember The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading unto knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. And so there is a time when patient endurance and teaching is important. But if they're causing people to fail or to fall, then... They need to be stopped. Paul tells that to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That was the group that was causing problems that came up in Acts 15. He says, Titus 1:11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so if they're causing trouble in the church, they're deceiving people in the church with their false doctrine, they need to be silenced. You want them to repent, you want them to know the Lord, but you don't want them 
destroying the lives of God's people. And of course, there comes a time, particularly with the gospel, that serious action is needed. And that's what we see in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, If we or an angel from heaven who preach your gospel contrary to the one you have, we have preached, let him be accursed, anathema. There's a point where putting them out of the church and saying they have no place is the job of the church. Particularly true if they're preaching another way of salvation. Look to Mary for your salvation. She's your savior. You know, look to your baptism for assurance of salvation. That saved you. Things like that get to be the point where the church has to really put its foot down. Now, these distinctions, I, I always make these and I repeat them periodically because they are important. We sometimes, we drive right to the end. Burn the heretics at the stake. And that's very destructive to the church. There's a huge difference between somebody being confused or deceived and a false teacher who's going around confusing and deceiving people. And we need to keep that in mind. If somebody doesn't agree with all the biblical doctrines I'm preaching and teaching, I'm sad. But I want them to stay in the church. I want them to continue hearing. Never know at some point their confusion may be overcome by scripture. And so I'll keep teaching them and answering questions as long as necessary, not giving up, as long as they're not going around teaching and making trouble with wrong doctrines anyway. So these antichrists, these false prophets, false teachers, are what he's warning us against, but then he gives us our encouragement. We should have, they should have no power over us. We should be safe. Verses 20 and 21. We have an anointing that protects us from false teachers and from antichrists. Now, there are people who get confused about this. They think, oh, we have this anointing. We have all knowledge. We have all understanding, it says. I'm going down to verse 26 and 27. We don't need to be taught anything. Therefore, we don't need teachers, we don't need the church, we don't need the pastors, we don't need the Bible, we don't need to study, we don't need to think. We just need to look at our hearts and know what's right. And they're taking it very much out of context. If you look just even at the preceding verse, you know, we're talking about the word, we're talking about understanding and knowledge. You can't be a church of one in the Bible. Uh, God has appointed the church and its officers, its teachers, to prepare us <coughs> through the word. And these people have gone out of the church because their conflict, their faith, their beliefs are contradicting the Bible and contradicting the word and contradicting, therefore, the church. And we're talking about believing churches here, not the apostate churches where you know, many people are fleeing. We need to keep that in mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 and following, that God has appointed in the church apostles and prophets and teachers 
miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. <coughs> he says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The assumed question in the grammar there is no. But God has put those things in the church so that the church, the believing church, can be the place where God's people come together to worship and to grow. This isn't a promise in in this passage that we don't need the church. We can do it alone. I can be a church of one. It's not a promise that we don't need a pastor. It's not a promise we don't need a teacher. It's not a promise we don't need the Bible. (coughs) It's not a promise. I have to take a cough drop. My throat's gotten very dry, sore. It's not a promise that we don't need to study God's word. It's not a promise we don't need to memorize the word. Not a promise that we don't need to meditate on the word or a promise that we don't need to spend time in prayer. It's not a promise that we don't need to discipline ourselves for the pursuit of holiness. What he's promising us here is that through our anointing, we have at our disposal knowledge of the truth. Something that man cannot achieve without the spirit of God. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and following? <coughs> the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. <coughs> So without the Spirit of God living in us, the Bible won't make any sense. We won't really understand it. We won't really be able to make use of it. And what he's saying in our anointing, we have the Spirit of God in us. We can now understand Scripture. We can now learn from it. We can now grow from it. We can now judge ourselves by it and judge all things by it. This is a promise that if we make faithful and diligent use of all these means that I just mentioned, that God has given to us, then God's Spirit will help us first to understand what we're studying, and second, to be able to use it to defend us against the attack of the world, the flesh, and the devil. John 14, 25 and 26, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, (coughs) whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Bring to remembrance. We need to have it in our minds first. We need to have studied it. We need to have tried to understand it through prayer, to memorize it. Then we have all this knowledge of the truth that can protect us from these antichrists, these false teachers and false prophets but only if we've really sought it carefully and diligently and understood it through the Spirit of Christ. He closes the verse with the words, No lie is of the truth. 
<coughs> We've already seen the incompatibility between light and darkness. In God, there is no darkness at all. He is light. Darkness cannot be in light. If we are in darkness, we cannot be in the light with him. Well, we also see now about the truth. He says if we walk in 1 John 1, 6, if we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The lie of false doctrine is incompatible with the truth of Christ. We can't have both. No one can have both. Somebody is teaching false doctrine and says they are in Christ. They are not in Christ. That is the test we will be looking at next week. But for us, what does all this mean? Well, <clears throat> we know they're out there, the Antichrist, the false prophets, the false teachers. We know they're trying to deceive us. So he said, I write these things to you, verse 26, about those who are trying to deceive you. We know they're trying to deceive us, and we know the answer. Through the anointing of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, searching and learning and understanding and knowing the Scripture, and the more we know, the more we're defended against the nonsense of the godless. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that these things are true, that we do have your Spirit. Your Spirit has enabled us to understand the word that was only foolishness to us before. And that through that understanding and our diligent work through, through the Spirit and in the Spirit, that we may have knowledge of the truth and be protected against the schemes of the devil and against the teachings of the Antichrists. And so we ask, Lord, to encourage our hearts to that diligence of searching the word and studying the word and memorizing the word and understanding it and meditating on it and applying it to us through your spirit that we might grow in our faith, be strong and be well protected. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.